Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. I like documentaries. I like documentaries because they enable us to go back and see what things originally looked like. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If you really want to know something, look back at its original intention, whether it's baseball, the founding of our country, perhaps even McDonald's. Really? That's how big the sizes of the drinks were? Our passage today invites us to look at the beginning of something we know about, and that is the church. It is a passage of scripture that we frequently glorify, and for good reason. We see our best intentions expressed in a a beautiful, pristine kind of expression. The early church. You may recall that last week, Peter has been transformed by the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It's 50 days after the resurrection. And when he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, he is able to preach and speak God's truth that is so very convicting that thousands come to believe in Jesus and be baptized in his name. What we're about to read is what happens next and is truly the first expression of the church. Church, of course, comes from the word ecclesia, or ecclesia, which means literally the gathering. Turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, beginning with verse 42, and let's see what the start of all this really looks like. These believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, As they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A child one day asked his father, a pastor, what the church was. The pastor thought about it for a moment, got down on one knee and said, well, here is the church, here is the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. But the child looked more closely at the fingers and was trying to find something else. And father said, what is it? And the boy said, 
And where are the ones you always complain about? Ah, yes. Church. If we want to know what the church is supposed to look like, we look no further than Acts 2. The believers devoted themselves to teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. It's four things. Four elements, four distinctives. It probably works to Luke's intention to group them. Teaching and fellowship. The breaking of bread and prayers. Teaching. They knew that it was important for them to learn about God's story and their story in it. They recognized that they had not arrived that even though they'd said yes to Jesus, more was needed. Fellowship. If you think about it, this is an interesting inclusion. Fellowship, literally, it means enjoying one another. The teaching of Scripture and the fellowship that they enjoyed one with the other went hand in hand. That the best way to learn and grow is to do it together. A breaking of bread. Yes, it's a nod to a remembrance meal. Do this in remembrance of me. The breaking of the bread, however, was probably not just a ritual, nearly as much as it was the fact that, hey, it's time to eat. Let's gather together. Let's break bread together. And as we do so together, we remember Jesus. And the prayers, of course. The prayers shared around the table, most likely, the Jewish prayers that they knew, the prayers that they offered at the time of the day that Jesus himself would have prayed. All who believed were together. They had all things in common, Luke tells us. They'd sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. They shared their lives together, so they shared their stuff together also. I mean, think about it. If the, the people shared a common story, if they shared core beliefs, if they shared table fellowship together, well, then, of course they were going to share their stuff together also, right? I mean, here's the thing. This isn't socialism. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. Jesus makes it clear that loving one another means that everyone is cared for. And in Deuteronomy and in numerous places... God goes so far as to say that our communities should never have anyone in need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home, they ate food, and did so with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. They worshiped together. They saw their identity in Jesus as distinctly and uniquely and universally connected to the faith of their fathers and mothers. They, they were Hebrews. They were Jews. Of course, they went to the table, to the temple, because Jesus was God's son. Jesus was the Messiah. They continued to do that. But they also shared their homes with one another. They had table fellowship together. 
They learned how to be church by taking their cues for how you treated one another around the table. Table manners matter. How you treated one another around the table in sharing, not hoarding food, honoring each other's contributions, listening to one one another, being present together. That's a great way to know how it is to be this new community, this new gathering, this church. This is what church is supposed to look like. This is our goal. This is our aim. This is how it should be. Yeah, and it lasts six verses. Six verses. This beautiful ideal that Luke lifts up that shows us what it is to be part of the body of Christ. Teaching. Fellowship. Breaking of bread, prayers, worshiping together, sharing the homes together. I mean, this is what it means to be the church. And it lasts, but just a whisper. You zoom out a little bit and you see, however, that this church, the church, is a new Eden. We weren't just throwing in the Genesis passage earlier because it sounds nice. We know, of course, that it's the second of two creation accounts that we find in Genesis. It's the one, one where we, we meet man and woman. It's where we develop the language that we are from dust and to dust we shall return. It's where we learn about our origins in God's breath. It's beautiful. It's poetic. And it tells the story of God's best intention of a garden, of a place, of paradise where all needs would be met and time would be filled marveling at God's creation and walking in the cool of the day with God, creator, sustainer, and redeemer. So the church in this moment is truly a new Eden. But just as in the stories in Genesis, this ideal community will be marred by sin, specifically the sin of greed and power and cruelty. I mean, we know what happens in the old Eden, how the doors are slammed shut because the people wanted it their way. And it happens again here in this new Eden. Y'all, you just go two chapters down the road and Luke tells us about a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they're generous to this new upstart church. We've already been, it's already been established that people gave so that no one had need. Well, they sold their home and they gave an extraordinary gift to this new church, but they held some of it back. Peter finds out about this, confronts one of them, drops dead. I'm not making this up. It's good stuff. <laughs> I mean, talk about a stewardship campaign. We know what you're up to. He drops dead. They bring him out. They bury him. Three hours later, they come back. They're there at the door. It's the spouse. Peter has the same conversation. She drops dead. Well, it's a good thing the pallbearers are there. They haul her out too. Next chapter. Persecution begins. 
the leaders, the apostles, they're thrown into prison. They face death. And are then, however, let go after being flogged. And then one chapter later, divisions begin to develop in the midst of the fellowship. You've heard this one. Some folk in the church are being neglected of the daily distribution. And it seems to fall on the lines of ethnic differences. They problem solve a solution, it's true, but there were certainly hard feelings and a hurt and just the beginning of fractures that happen in this new Eden. See, yeah, in this moment, the church is a new Eden, but just as it was true in Genesis, there'll always be some snakes in the grass. It's a word that I wasn't familiar with until I began to go to the First Baptist Church of Asheville. I was a 14-year-old, and in the youth ministry that they had there, they, they had a name for the gathering, for the youth, that I was not familiar with. It's koinonia. It's a Greek word, and koinonia literally means fellowship. As I said earlier, fellowship means enjoying each other. It was on display yesterday in the Mission and Fellowship Center when our men gathered together and, and talked and visited and, and caught up and laughed together, moved by the story that we heard, the testimony. Koinonia means sharing your life with others. And it is at the very heart of what it means to do what we're doing. You may recall that in that beautiful, elegant description of, of what the early church looked like, it, it was all about action verbs. Actually, come to think of it, all verbs are action. Anyways, there's a point there. They were all doing something. Church was not something that you just showed up for and observed. Church was not something that you just streamed. We're grateful that you're streaming with us today, however. Worship was not something that was passive. Being church meant being actively involved and engaged. It was koinonia. It was sharing your life with others. But y'all, it hasn't always been like that, just as it's probably not like this today. In the 4th century, a soldier by the name of Pacomius was converted to Jesus. He became a Christian, and he wanted to be the most faithful Christian that he could be. So he looked around, and he saw that those most serious about the faith left the cities, left the towns, left the communities, and lived by themselves in the desert. They were called the desert fathers and mothers. They were ascetics. And it's probably attractive to some of us today. These would be individuals that would go and live in caves deep in the Smokies, right, in our context, or would, would go out west where they couldn't see anybody else around them. And they'd live in isolation, believing that was the best way they could be faithful. That is, to be away from this dark, horrible, no-good world and all of its negative influences. But the thing was that this didn't sit well with Pacomius. Because he couldn't square up what he was hearing about Jesus and the community that he developed 
And the community that the Holy Spirit inaugurated at Pentecost and that we read about here because being alone didn't seem at all consistent with what Jesus was telling the people to do. So he began to question the methods and lifestyle of, of these heroes of his faith who lived by themselves. He, he wondered, how can you learn to love if no one else is around? How can you learn humility if you live alone? How can you learn kindness or gentleness or goodness in isolation? How can you learn patience unless someone puts yours to the test? In short, he believed that to save souls, you must bring people together. Personally, I like the, the image of the church as soul friends. Y'all will remember several years ago that our church participated in an experiment. And I had learned that one of the distinctives of Irish or Celtic Christianity from centuries ago was having a soul friend, an anamkara, someone to share the path with. This was not someone that was your spouse. This was someone else. This was somebody else that you shared the path with and that you listened to, that you shared your life with, that you offered confession, that you also offered words of assurance and forgiveness, and that you prayed together. Is it really that simple that church is just a, a collection of soul friends? I, I'd like to think so. And I, I dare say that you are here today because of the friendships that brought you here and that you developed here and that has sustained you here. Reminds me of the individual that was new to town, and so he did what his mother and father told him to do. We need to go and join a Sunday school class. You need to go to church. That's where you develop friends. So he shows up, and he arrives. There's a room of folk, and he, they all turn to look at him. And he says, does anybody know where a guy can find a person to hang out with, talk to, and enjoy spending time with? I'm just asking for a friend. We're just asking for a friend when we show up here. The best expression of church is when we become soul friends to one another. It's not a small thing. Being friends to one another in Christ's name demands reciprocity. It requires obedience and commitment to each other to to prioritize showing up, scheduling time to meet up with one another, finding ways to sit on the same pew and to share a table over fellowship. In short, being soul friends in the context of what we're trying to do means being Christ to one another. And y'all, if you don't think this matters... If you don't think there's a need for a family of soul friends being Christ to others, well, just look around. We have forgotten how to be neighbors. 
We kill those who knock on the wrong doors in our neighborhoods. And we kill those who go to get sugar at Walmart. And we kill those who go to school. We've forgotten how to trust one another. We demonize those who are different than we are. We choose rage over kindness. And we'll sacrifice civility so that we can prove to everybody that we are right. We've lost any sense of the common good. Or as Luke would put it, the goodwill of all people. The only thing that we can imagine that's good is what's good for us. Sadly, this is not a new phenomena. And it certainly wasn't new. About 75, 80, 90 years ago in South Georgia, for a Baptist pastor by the name of Clarence Jordan, he believed that the time in which he lived was a time where the church desperately needed to be the church in a setting that was wrecked by segregation and racism, violence and hate and injustice. So he did something ancient and new and novel and controversial. He developed in 1940 in America's Georgia a community called Koinonia Farm. Koinonia Farm was an experiment. It wasn't his new experiment. It was taken directly from Acts 2. It was a community of people who decided to share their lives together. They shared their resources together. They listened to one another. They walked on the path together. And they did so as white men and women and children and black men and women and children. In 1954, a, terror, a terrorist organization known as the Ku Klux Klan burned every building on the farm except for Jordan's. And while the raid was going on, as the fires leapt, he recognized a voice of one of those who were there spreading the fire. He remembered it because the next day, as he was tending to the farm, in the midst of a ruins of a community, he heard that same voice. It was the voice of a reporter that had come to ask Dr. Jordan some questions. He said, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night. So I came out to, to do a story on the closing of your farm. Jordan didn't look up. He kept hoeing and weeding. The reporter continued. And he said, Dr. Jordan, you've got two PhDs. You're a Baptist pastor. You've put 14 years into this farm, and now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? With that, Jordan stopped, and he looked up, and he said, You just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. Ah, yes. 
Success is an attractive God. Success can be cheap and it can come easily. You just have to know what, what to sacrifice. Oh, y'all, we could pack these pews. But what would it take? What would it require? If success is what our culture says that it is, there's, there's any number of prescriptions and plans to do it. Just look online. Just don't understand us Christians, Durden said. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. It's a good thing that Clarence stuck with it. For a number of years later, he received a visitor from a very unhappy and dissatisfied millionaire. The man's name was Millard Fuller. And he was on vacation with his family, and he'd heard about this place called Koinonia Farm, and he showed up, and he talked with Jordan, learned more about them, and he was inspired by what they were doing to put his own skills and gifts in a position that they could do a different kind of good than the first part of his life. Turns out that he sacrificed much in order to be faithful. He traded success for faithfulness, and in doing so, he built an operation that has changed thousands, if not tens of thousands of people's lives. When asked about it, about the challenges of this, this new endeavor, this new project that grew out of his relationship with Jordan and, and Koinonia Farm, he said, Listen, running this massive operation is not without problems. He said, there have been troubles and there will be more. Tired bones, disappointments, disunity, not enough money. But God has called us to this ministry. God has called us to this ministry. Perhaps you've heard of his ministry. It's called Habitat for Humanity. You know, it, it can be hard to be church, especially when you take away the, the rights and privileges and successes the church has enjoyed over the last 100 years, those moments and times where everyone just went to church, where everything stopped on Sundays, where Little League games weren't scheduled on Wednesday nights where you had to get there early because otherwise you wouldn't get a seat. So yes, we are in a place of testing. This is a moment where it would be really easy for us to say this was fine for a season. But doing so would forget the many generations and centuries of people who believed that it was faithfulness and not success that was their goal. We know and practice Jesus by being together. And when we are together, we are the church. 
And when we gather together, we bear witness to the transforming power of Jesus. For when we are together and we read scripture together and when we act together, we have a message of hope and love and peace and and shalom that only God can provide. It's true, it would be easier not to be church. But brothers and sisters, as followers of the Christ, that's not an option for us. We don't choose to be church because it's easy or because it's in our best interest. We choose to be church because we belong to Christ Now, church has never been a cakewalk, and we shouldn't expect it to be so. Church isn't easy, well, except for those six verses. Let's pray together. God, you've called us to something hard because people are hard. We are hard. But God, this is how we best know you Out of love for us, you came and walked among us, and you did not withdraw. You did not withdraw from the city or from one another. No, instead you invited others, a crazy different group of people, men and women, to follow you, and they were not without their hiccups, challenges, and problems. And you were with them. So you can imagine, God, the concern we have about our path, We rely, however, God, on the gift of the Holy Spirit and on your presence revealed to us through one another. So, God, strengthen our resolve. Let us be committed to the right things and allow us, God, to be transformed so that we can be a blessing to others, that we might seek the goodwill, not of all, not only of ourselves, but of all people. So that your kingdom might become now and forevermore. Amen.